Hello, and welcome to the Did You Know Crypto podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Dreyfus, and I'm very excited today to be welcoming onto the show one of the heroes of mine in the liberty movement, Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. His article in 2013 called Bitcoin for Beginners was very influential in getting me on board with Bitcoin. It lended a lot of credence coming from somebody in academia. In this episode, we talk about everything from his journey from being a crypto skeptic to being a Bitcoin evangelist, as well as crypto utopianism, a lot of stuff on economics. I really think that you're going to get a lot out of this episode. So why don't we delve right in? And thanks for listening. Welcome, Jeffrey Tucker, Editorial Director for the American Institute for Economic Research, Chief Liberty Officer at Freedom.me, founder of the Atlanta Bitcoin Embassy, and author of countless articles and books, including his latest called The Right-Wing Collectivism, The Other Threat to Liberty. Mr. Tucker, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. I I have to say it's also a great pleasure to speak with you. Actually, I missed you at the LP convention in Madison this year. Oh, oh, uh, uh Yeah, the snowstorm kept us from driving uh, south that way. So, but I really appreciate you taking your time to come on the on the podcast. And before we kind of get more into the Bitcoin side of it, I kind of want to talk about your early life. You know, what kind of drew you to economics as sort of your vocation? Well, I was I was a musician actually. It's it's so funny because you know my 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 beloved father always uh, wanted me to be a musician, so he trained me. Uh, from a very early age and, and to be a trombonist. And, and I was very, very good. So by the time I was in seventh or eighth or ninth grade, I was, I would go darn good. And, and by the time I was a sophomore in high school, I was actually like on the verge of like, everyone in Texas thought I was the next greatest trombonist in the world. It was that kind of thing, you know? So like I had, I had some great trombonists fly in in order to train me so they could say that they were my teacher. I mean, it was like, it was crazy. And um, and I was playing at the Texas Tech Trombone Ensemble as a junior in high school and touring with the Guy Lombardo Orchestra and just doing all this stuff. And I, you know, it was my life. It was all I knew. And, and then one day I woke up and I thought, you know, um, so I was maybe 17 at this time, maybe 16, 17. And I was like, you know, I don't know. I mean, everybody's told me I was supposed to do this one thing. Maybe I should do something else. And, and I had a, a chance for a fresh start because I was going to college. And I didn't like the music world that much because uh, not, you know, I loved music, but I didn't like the people in it because they were really against the consumer. They were the most disgruntled, uh, dour crowd I'd ever seen. And, <laughs> uh, and I, I, I didn't like hanging around them because they were always down on the audience and down on the world and down on everything. And, they, and you know, they just wanted to play their own nonsense and and they were against you know uh consumer culture and i i just I, you know something something dreary about it I, I just couldn't i didn't want to be there and i certainly didn't want to be there for the whole of college so um so i went around from t- department to department looking for um some major that i could have that some kind of interest i could have that wasn't music because it was like, you know, that great moment in life where it's like a blank slate. You're like, oh, I, wait, I can do anything I want. You know, I, I can shape my own life. And so I bumped into the economics department, which it's, it's, I didn't know what economics was, but it's, it's, 
um, as the head of the department explained it to me, that through economics you could understand why nations rise, why they fall, why people are prosperous, whether they're poor, you know, how wealth works, where it comes from, where it's how it's created. And I thought, wow, that's that's everything I, I care about. So I became an economics major and, and just threw myself into it. Um, and uh, conventional uh, kind of economics, you know, like straight out Keynesianism, you know, was what was being taught to me. And I, I, and I liked it more or less. But then I ran into this sort of alternative uh, school of, of, of thought, which was more about uh, stories about human beings actually engaging the world. And I got really enraptured by, you know, the work of Hans Hedholtz and Ludwig von Mises and eventually... Um, I met Murray Rothbard. We were good friends for 10 years. And then I helped to be, uh, build uh, Mises.org and, and moved, went on to restart Leslie Fair Books and work at the Foundation for Economic Education. And, and, you know, I'm a little bit of a restless person, I have to say. But, you know, and restless people are, are a little bit scary. It's like you have to always ask yourself, wait, am I going to get bored of this thing that I'm doing right now and, and, and have this undying desire to move on to something else. Like, for example, I wrote a book about medieval polyphony and I, I became like, you know, a, a, a fairly well-known conductor of Gregorian chant around the world and commentator on that subject and everything, but I got bored of it, you know? So, I mean, that's just one of thousands of weird interests I've had. Um, but for some reason, economics and, and the dynamic of freedom and what that means in the world is always, it's captivated me my entire life. I, I'm 54 years old right, right now, and I'm just as enraptured as I was when I was 20, you know, with the whole topic. So, which is not to say I know more, but I, I keep learning more, and I always have this sense that I'm going to find the thing that makes it all make sense to me. And so maybe that's what keeps it going. You know, people say it's a science, maybe it's not. I don't know, but it's an. Uh, it's a fascinating subject and and I can't stop thinking about it. I can't stop writing about it. And I think that that restlessness is probably, I'm guessing what kind of piqued your interest uh, in, in Bitcoin and kind of that, that yeah, love of complexity. But, but you know, what's interesting to me about, about Bitcoin is what it meant for me intellectually, because it was a humbling moment for me because when I first heard about it, I thought, well, there's all kind of reasons why, the theory that I have uh, would say that this thing cannot work and it's not real. And I dismissed it. I, I, I have full email archives going back to um, 2010 where I was just like, that's not, this is nonsense. You can't make an, uh, a money by clicking on a cube computer. This is alchemy. Uh, this is a bunch of naive computer programmers who don't understand monetary theory and so on. And I, I really got it. I, I, I was sure that it was, it was uh, not real. And then it kept growing and growing and growing over the uh, next uh, two or three years. And I finally um, found myself you know, fully engaged in the topic and, and in the physical ownership in, in uh, early 2013. And, 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 and because Bitcoin was so compelling... And, you know, when it was initially compelling to me, it was, as I recall, it was like $14. Um, I, I realized that there was something wrong with my whole social epistemology. You know, like I thought because I was smart, I knew more than, I don't know, the market or, you know, 
uh, the distribution of creators and innovators around the world, you know, entrepreneurs, like I, I knew what could be and what, what didn't, what, what couldn't be. And I was certain this, this could not be. And then I discovered that it could be, and it shocked me and it really changed my outlook on life. I was like, Oh, well, if I didn't know that, what else don't I know? And it, it really kind of kicked off a new period for me in my, in my, in my intellectual life, you know, just a sense of exploration and, uh, uh, realization that I, I didn't know everything, you know, and 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 I began to uh, uh, approach everything I read and everything I wrote about uh, differently after that, actually, and even to this day. I mean, I, I think I wrote an article, maybe maybe a week ago or something like that. Now it was about green stamps and money like things, just the weird sense that 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 there, there's not some sort of black and white pictures, not either money or not money, that everything, like a ton of things are moving between the two. There's, there's degrees of moneyness. And I'm, I'm fascinated by that. Um, and I'm intrigued by it. I write about it just constantly because I'm, I'm so interested in, in this. And there's nothing about Bitcoin, of course. I mean, just the, the idealism behind the whole topic. It's like, Oh well, maybe we can make our own money. We don't have to rely on the government. You know, that's it's a departure from everything I th- I had learned from Mary, who I think was basically wrong on this topic. Unfortunately, you know, God bless his soul, but he was he was wrong on on many aspects of uh, the path towards monetary reform. And Hayek turns out to have been more right than anybody else. And and I didn't used to believe that, so I I literally changed my mind. I mean, like I did a pivot. Uh, intellectually on on a subject that had been really important to my life since I was 20, 21 years old. So um, so Bitcoin was for me life changing. It's 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 not just what it is. It's 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 also a symbol of the need for intellectual humility. And uh, I gradually changed my whole outlook on on everything between uh, 2000. Um, you know, maybe it was 11, 2011, and, and going forward. And, and now I feel like, thanks to Bitcoin, I'm, I'm kind of a different person. When I first wrote about the topic, I didn't actually know why Bitcoin worked. I just knew that it worked, you know? And was that, a, was that was Bitcoin, Bitcoin for beginners? For beginners? Um, that, well, I wrote my first article maybe February of 2013. I was writing for Leslie okay. Fair Books at the time. And, um, yeah, maybe it was Bitcoin for beginners. Um, but my first article was really naive. It was just kind of a, um, just a happy article about, wow, I discovered this cool new thing and who can make any sense of it? I don't know. You know, it was that kind of article. I need, I keep meaning to look back at that and, and, uh, and sort of fisk it and, and examined, you know, what I got right and what I got wrong. If I got anything wrong, I, I don't really know. Um, because like I say, I didn't know why it worked. And so the next year I was spent, you know, trying to unravel what I thought I knew and figure out where my brain went wrong. Why is Bitcoin valuable? You know, how does it work? What is this thing we call cryptography? Uh, what, what, why does a peer to peer distributed network actually assist in the facilitation of the creation of money? You know, what are the prospects? Um, what, what is Bitcoin? What makes Bitcoin different from PayPal? You know, 
I was like, I, none of those questions I could actually answer in the early of two, uh, 2013. But by a year later, I could answer them all. So it was it was real intellectual journey for me. So, you know, and, and so here we are in 2018, which is not that much long after Bitcoin was actually invented. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty patient with people that dismiss it and say, oh, it's a bubble. It's a it's a this. It's a that. It's just used for drug dealers, you know, whatever, whatever. It's a money laundering scam um, because I know the difficulties of, of understanding it. And I know what it's like to be bitten by the bug and, 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 and to see the vision and, and to imagine a future that's very unlike the past. So I always try to be patient with people. You know, I, it doesn't surprise me at all uh, how much incredulity there is out there. And I think people kind of forget now, I, I guess you don't really want to call it ubiquitous in the culture. It's it's at least people know the name of it, which is a is a real big accomplishment right. uh, from three four years ago. But you know, early on, I, I got actually involved in 2013. Actually, your mm-hmm. article is one of the first I'd been reading on forums, but like an actual like academic, or you know, more than just some you know a Bitcoin talk forum or something on Wired magazine. And that was one of the first articles I really read that mm-hmm. kind of made me go, hey, maybe. You know, this is more than I was interested in. It. I like the idea, but it, the the credence that someone like yourself, who was actually part of the you know academic structure, lended a lot of credence to it. And but for for someone like me, I was talking about it with my family, and everyone just thought it was kind of a goofy thing. A lot of them still do, probably, even if they're listening right now. And you know, that's not like a real big deal because I've had a lot of goofy ideas throughout my life. Right. So, but for someone like you and I I mean, basically your your entire field and all your peers were probably at best dismissive of it, if not outright hostile to the idea. I had had no idea what, what I was, uh, what I was doing when I wrote my first article, it was truly like the ceiling fell in on me. You know, everybody was against me. All my peers um, were dismissing me. They thought I would fall in for a hoax, you know, that I was a gullible and uh, idiot who didn't understand my theory well. And I, I, I faced like an unbelievable amount of trolling even five years ago. And, um, and I got scared. I mean, I did. I thought, wow, you know, maybe, maybe I am an idiot. You know, maybe I, I don't know what I'm talking about. Maybe, maybe I've, I have fallen for a hoax. I mean, that literally was... What happened to me um, in those days? It was scary, and I and I thought, wow, I've worked, you know, twenty years, uh, twenty five years, really, uh, to build up a career and a reputation, and and now I've thrown it all away on this this dumbass magic internet money. You know what? What have I done? I I didn't know for sure, but I'd, basically, I tried to stay honest with myself and uh, say what I thought was true even if it wasn't true you know i i just i felt like i had an obligation as an intellectual and as a as a uh, a public intellectual really to to say what to to write what i thought was true even if i didn't know for sure it was true you know and it turned out well for me in a way um but i i'm not sure why and and it was it was it was a very scary moment really 
ultimately. And I understand the temptation of intellectuals to want to go along with what's already known, you know, to hide behind the great thinkers, you know, to, to embed your thought into a, uh, a school of thought so you don't, you're not exposed and, 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 and so that uh, you're just part of a community and you don't, um, you don't, uh, you're, you're not, you're not out there on a limb, you know, so nobody can cut you off. And I suddenly found myself out, of, out on a limb and it was scary. It was a scary thing for me actually, because I felt like I'd worked really hard for, um, for my reputation. And I, I almost inadvertently felt like I was sort of sacrificing everything for the, for the sake of this, this crazy thing, you know, and, and it scared me because people were really blasting me. I mean, I was being trolled so hard by people I respect, you know, and, and, and at that point, the Bitcoin community was very kind to me because, you know, I was, uh, to my mind, a little bit late to the subject. So there was already, all these people out there that really believed in it, like Eric Voorhees and Charlie Shrem and these guys who were, Roger Veer, I think, was already all in. Um, so they became kind of my new friend circle because they understood what I was going through. And they weren't quite very sophisticated money people like I thought of myself as one. Um, so I was kind of, the, at, that, at that point in history, the most high-end a uh, monetary theorist, I guess you could say, who endorsed, you know, this crazy idea. And it was it was genuinely scary. Within the next 12 to 24 months, more people got involved and ultimately, now I'm just like a normal dude or whatever, but back in those days it was it was really scary. Yeah, I think even now though, it it still is quite strange for most people. I mean, they read the Forbes articles and CNBC Fast Money, which is actually a bad idea on CNBC wise. But um, it, it, I still think it is still kind of a weird thing. But yeah. you know, it's. It, it, but I guess it not as much. It really changed over the last year. What it really kind of burst onto the public consciousness in 2017, more due to price than Maybe, actual understanding. You know what's tech. funny about that though? Can you still hear me? Okay. Yeah. Okay, so what's funny about that is that in a way, we, we've we've crossed into a new era. Uh, the people who are are have made their reputations based on debunking uh, um, Bitcoin are, are refuse to see the reality that they were wrong. You know, so they get actually more entrenched than ever. You know, and all good news is bad news. All bad news they they consider to be confirmation of what they what they believed. And so people have really uh, gone into their respective corners on the whole topic. And I deal with these people every single day. And it gets a little tedious, you know, because I was there at one point. I was I was the greatest skeptic there was. And, you know, maybe 2011, 2010, 2011, I was deeply... Um, dismissive of the whole thing so i i kind of i, I kind of get them and but but also i think they've all been proven wrong and like um i find i find it just kind of amazing that there's still people out there that that dismiss the whole topic oh you can't make money on the internet this is all just nonsense um and i found that very few are willing to change their minds based on the evidence at all so what I've started doing is just started giving Bitcoin to people, actually. Because um, um, quite often what happens is that 
uh, the skeptics feel as if they've missed out and they're, they're kind of engaged in self-justifying behavior, you know? <laughs> they're like, oh, I missed out on Bitcoin, so now I have to uh, dismiss it and constantly attack it. Um, the, the, and, 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 and so when you give them Bitcoin, they suddenly feel in a, a, a sense of personal investment in the whole topic. And it shuts them up. That's why I do it. Even as, if it is, you know, you can do it with like $2. It doesn't matter. $2, $1, $10. Um, just make it, make a person a stakeholder in, in, in the industry and they start to change their minds. Yeah, it was kind of funny. You were talking about how you're the biggest skeptic. It kind of sounded like a very Paulian road to Damascus sort of story. Kind of. Yeah. And, yeah. and like I say, it was, it was about more than just discovering that Bitcoin was real. I discovered that I didn't know everything and it, it drew me into a different way of thinking. And I got much more interested in, you know, I love, I love Mises. I love my mentor Murray uh, very, very much, but uh, they also were rationalists in many ways. And, and people don't believe it, but the libertarian world is filled with rationalism. You know, people think they know the right way that everything's supposed to work. And it, 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 that perspective ultimately became unsatisfying to me, you know. And so I, I got more and more drawn to Hayek and the traditional philosophy he represents and, and began to understand a little bit more about uncertainty, about process, about the gradual unfolding of, of, uh, uh, of, the, of the market, revealing things to us that we didn't think were possible. And I, I, I don't know, I just became, uh, you know, I felt like I went to a different level. You know, once, once an intellectual uh, decides, you know, realizes, oh, I don't know everything. That's a big moment. Well, would you, oh, there's a little bit of feedback in there. I don't know if there's something scratching the mic. Maybe I was just picking up my bow tie. How about now? Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, that's fine. Um, I, I, I think... Would you say that a lot of the pushback, especially from mainstream economists, would be due to the fact that most mainstream economists are are of the kind of the Keynesian school? And I really don't feel that Bitcoin would ever come into existence out of a group of people that had kind of the Keynesian mindset. I mean, it would make absolutely no sense that you would do something. Oh, so it's, for, it's, sure, for sure. I mean, if, if you go back and look at the history of, of, of thought, uh, you can see that there was a, a book that came out in something like 1906 called The State Theory of Money by – you can look it up. Um, but the Keynesians are really dedicated to this, to this idea that, that, that only government can produce money and that anything not produced by, by government is not real, it's not stable. And it's, this is a very important thing. I mean, like a lot of 20th century macroeconomics is uh, bound up with the idea of controlling the money supply as a, as a mechanism to um, manipulate the macroeconomic environment. And that requires, <clears throat> like, how do you control the money supply? You, ha you have to control the banks, you have to print the money, you have to have a monopoly on money, all the money has to go through a regulated banking system, and so on, so on. Um, that is the state theory of money. So, uh, yeah, guys like Paul Krugman can't and will not ever come around to the, to, to the topic. I mean, it's, it's like they look at it like, look, if you let go of the money, you know, if, if money is going to be produced 
purely privately. Um, the intellectuals and and uh, the, and their their friends in the in the political world will will ultimately lose all the power, and they can't stand that. They can't stand that that possibility. It's so terrifying to them. So they'll never they'll never come around. I mean, that's just the reality. I mean, that they they can't they can't and won't come around. No, it's Austrian economics was just so pivotal to Bitcoin's creation because, I mean, even Satoshi was talking in one of the forum posts. There's one talking about Mises regression theorem that he participated in. And, and uh, yeah, there was, uh, there was a topic on Bitcoin talk uh, asking whether or not Bitcoin met Mises regression theorem of money. Mm. And and he kind of came to the, to the defense of it. So, I mean, we can't really – you never – explicitly stated it and said i am a libertarian who believes in the austrian school of economics whether you know the different flavors of that might be but i don't think you can escape that it was at least aware and heavily influenced by it to come up with something there's no question i mean and and to give murray credit because murray was actually in, in some sense the worst on this topic i mean he really thought that there could never be a new money that the dollar had to be reformed uh, and that was his path to reform. And Mises himself was was an old fashioned gold standard guy, you know, and and a minimal statist, you know, uh, in the sense that he believed in a small state, but that the the job of the state was to define the money and and defend defend that monet, monetary system, which which he believed was a gold standard. Um, but there's there's one sense in which Murray's uh, vision actually informed Bitcoin, and it has to do with his. His whole view concerning um, property rights, actually, and um, he thought that banks were the major violators of people's property rights. Like you, you give them uh, deposits; they mixed all the deposits, they would overextend credit, and uh, and then and then endanger themselves as a business and go run into the state to bail them out. You know, and so that's why Murray believed in a hundred percent reserve system. And and there's a there's a way in which. Uh, the protocol of of Bitcoin itself kind of embodies that Rothbardian vision. Actually, it's very interesting. What do you think that I mean? Because I know that Rothbard was very critical of Hayek's idea of the private issuance of currencies. But if if Rothbard were still alive today, if he had seen the kind of the rise <laughs> of Bitcoin, do you think that he would? I mean, I would imagine he he would have to change his mind on this topic. He was not against that. So well, you're very sweet to ask that question, and and it, uh, as as you might suspect, it's an impossible question to answer because because Murray died in in 1995, and that was really, in some ways, before the digital era really uh, became a thing. I mean, he never used email, ever. Um, 1995 email was still a little bit weird. He did like the fax machine, actually. Um, he would pound out his manuscripts and fax them to the office. And, and he liked it, and he was enraptured by it. But he, he, was, he was never a techno guy, really. And the other thing is, like, Murray was really, really against Hayek's vision of denationalized uh, choice and currency. So there's a lot... You know, it's, it's really interesting to speculate if Murray would have come around, because... Like I say, he died um, in '95, um, but Murray was also a very agile intellectual. So you know, at this point, we're really entering into pure speculation about what he would have been willing to change his mind on. He did change his mind a lot of times. Mostly, he changed his mind on tactics, 
not so much on theory. Um, and this would have required a, a fundamental theoretical change. I do know that he, he had done that in the course of his life. Um, I guess my I, I guess I tend to think that that Murray would not have come around on Bitcoin actually if I if I were going to guess only because uh, yeah I, yeah it's really hard to say it, it 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 depends on who had had his ear how much patience he could have had for listening to the explanations I just I just don't know I I think I I would tend to give Murray credit for being more agile than than his. His followers today, you know, who who look at his written work as some sort of um, canon, um, and and I, I don't think that's the right way to look at Murray. But whether he would have come around or not, it's really hard. It's hard to say. But there's no question that Murray's own writings had a huge influence on the creation of Bitcoin and Hayek and Kersner and Menger and. And a lot of other people from the Austrian tradition. You know, I think the Austrian tradition of Bitcoin are really inextricably linked um, at some level. But but it's very difficult to talk about that because, you know, neither Hayek nor Menger nor Murray nor Mises, none of these people, or, nor Kersner, uh, had really come of age in a digital era. And part of the difficulty of Bitcoin is is, is understanding the value of of digits, you know, uh, the productivity and economics of the digital world. And none of these guys ever really had it. Um, they were never really part of that. Um, nowadays, uh, you, you think about their successors, and I think of them as like basically uh, Larry White, George Selgin, the Sound Money Project associated with AIR and so on. They're all just really super interested in in cryptocurrency and fascinated by the topic. So none of them are Bitcoin maximalists, by the way. But um, uh, yeah, so, um, but, but, the, 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 but I would say they're more inclined to, to look at Bitcoin as something uh, to, to think about seriously in, in any case. I, I would love the idea of Murray uh, coming around the topic. I mean, there's a lot of things I, like anybody who knew Murray thinks about him all the time. Like, what would Murray be saying or doing today? And we all disagree with each other, you know. Um, I mean, my good friend Walter Block and I disagree just like profoundly and fundamentally on so many things. And yet we both think we're um, channeling Murray, you know, <laughs> so, yeah. so that's kind of the, the, the sort of figure that he was, he was, he was just a giant in history and, and nobody who knew him or was impacted by him, you know, uh, uh, today, even we, like every single day we think about him, you know, what would Murray do? What would Murray think? And, and nobody really knows, you know, it's part of the frustration. To to get kind of just the last question of uh, in, in regards to Austrian economics uh, to get further deep you know into the weeds is that's okay your your uh, I was listening to your debate uh, on Naomi Brockwell's uh, show with the uh, with Gene Epstein <laughs> yeah. in regards to the uh, you, you know how you actually you know believe that Mises regression theorem yeah. you know, that Bitcoin doesn't meet it I do and I thought that was I thought that was really interesting as well because you attributed to a mistranslation while Bob Murphy was also kind of almost in a way doing the same thing, but mm. in kind of a different way where he, you know, he was saying that it doesn't meet it because mm. uh, it's not, it's not credit money. It wasn't a commodity prior to being adopted mm. as money. Although I think that's 
service of blockchain that actually can meet that. But he also contends that fiat itself was a mistranslation of yes. the word signed money mm. and that Bitcoin itself could be considered a signed money. Nah. So he actually contends that it's a fiat. Nah. I don't agree. Nah. But that's I all nonsense. I, I, lo- I, love, <laughs> I love Bob, but that's, that's just nonsense. Um, yes, yes. Uh, credit was a mistranslation. The, the right word is fiduciary media, um, which, which you, you rendered as, as side money, or I would just simply say money substitute. Um, um, that, that's all fascinating and, and interesting, but yeah, I, I don't think that's what Bitcoin is. I think Bitcoin is actually money. It, it really is money, which according to the, the early definition of Mises in his, in his book, uh, what, you know, maybe this is a pedantic, pedantic question, but you know, it, it always seems to come back to it. What is money? And, um, Mises finally decided after this long treatise, which is a definitely worth a read right now theory of money and credit or theory of money and fiduciary media really is the correct word yeah. uh, but um what 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 mises said is that money is the thing that you acquire not to consume but in the anticipation that it can be traded for something um else that is in fact a consumable good so you you acquire it not for consumption purposes, but but in, in in anticipation that it can be traded for for consumption goods later, so it, it facilitates indirect exchange. Um, then he had another uh, descriptive proviso that that money t- it, it tends to be the uh, commonly accepted medium of exchange, so that so that you don't acquire it just for your own sake because you think that. Um, it can be traded later for for something you want to consume, but um, but you believe that other people are going to do the same. So th- there's a, an element of common common acceptance, you know, that becomes part of the the observable definition of money. So there's two parts to this. One is what are your intentions, and and then what becomes the empirical reality. And with regard to Bitcoin, I would say that certainly in the first instance, it, it is money. You 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 are acquiring it because you believe that it can be um, accepted later. Um, not, not you acquire it not to consume it, but with the with the expectation that it can be traded for something consumable later. So use value becomes really important in that Misesian definition of money. Whether it's commonly accepted or not, I feel like. It, it it is commonly accepted in some respects, but it's but not in every respect, you know. And the state's making it as difficult as possible, actually, to achieve that second level of moneyness. So I'm I you know at some level I'm I'm, I'm happy to describe it as a money like thing. I, I I just I don't want to get in debates with people, but I definitely do think it does in some circumstances of time and place serve as money. In other respects, it's not. So. Um, that's why I would look at it right now. Yeah, so I, I just uh, I always find these these kind of internal debates really. Oh, it, it really is fascinating. And as for the regression theorem, I mean, you know, that's a funny topic because this was Mises' theory. He, he didn't he didn't make a big deal out of it. By the time that you know, in it, I think it appears on like chapter seven or something like you know the. 15th paragraph of one chapter and it only lasts like two, two, two paragraphs in his book. So Mises didn't think it was a very interesting point, but his point was that, that, um, the circularity of, of use value, marginal utility and price 
is ultimately ended in the case of Bitcoin. And that's where the word regression comes from, because you're going back in time, but back back in time, you know, the price is a marginal utility, the marginal utility is a price. And so it's like, well, what, what was the initial value of money? And Mises says, well, the initial value of money traces to its, um, its value as a, as a bartered commodity. Which and 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 in his earliest book he says, um, and that bartered commodity has use value in itself. Okay, so that's the passage I seized on to argue that Bitcoin does satisfy all the conditions of the regression theorem because it, it because it in fact does has have use value, but the use value itself is due to. Um, the blockchain technology, which which allows uh, you know the, the transference of immutable information bits peer to peer, in a way with a, uh, that is uh, provides an uncrackable sort of audit, audit trail, and and that's never been possible in the history of the world. So that itself is is an awesome service, and that service use value becomes then embedded in the mathematical numerator of Bitcoin itself. So in that sense, it's all it does work. Now, there's one sense in which it doesn't work, and that is that um, uh, in 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 the Misesian rendering of of history, uh, money obtains the value literal price that it, it once had as as a bartered bartered commodity whereas when bitcoin obtained its value it started at zero and immediately went to a 16th of a penny on october 5th 2009 so it didn't have a pre-existing value in barter um but it did have a use value which you can observe by the fact that there were about 100 transactions per day between the genesis block and october 5th and you have to ask yourself, why were these transactions taking place in a zero-price world? And I think the answer is that people were just fascinated by the technology. And don't forget, it was it was released as an open-source technology, so it couldn't – blockchain services could not have obtained a price at all. Like, it was – actually impossible for them to obtain a price because it was released as an open-source protocol. So <clears throat> the way I look at that is like the pricing of the bartered commodity um, and its use value is historically contingent, and um, and Mises couldn't imagine you know a, a bartered commodity being traded at zero price because there was no such thing as a distributed network released into the commons in 1912. You know, like we didn't know what that yeah. even meant. So, yeah, you have to tweak the theory a little bit, but I still feel like it satisfies all the conditions that Mises laid out. And you know what's funny about this this whole debate? And, and thank you for bringing it up. I mean, it's such a geeky topic, right? Uh, but, you know, there's like one in a billion people even care about, you know, Mises' regression theorem. And I remember it was something like September, August, uh, August, September, November, October, November of 2013, I remember puzzling about this question of the regression theorem and finally deciding, yeah, you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't know whether it satisfies those conditions or not. What does it matter? It actually works. It is money. It is, it is the thing. We're, 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 we're dealing peer-to-peer with a 
an, an indirect exchange without financial intermediaries. It, I see it every day. This is happening. Who cares about the theory? You know, I mean, you know, if if the theory doesn't work, you know, let's get rid of it. Let's let's look at the reality. That was very hard for me because I'd always been a like theory primacy guy, you know, and suddenly I had to I had to ask myself like what if this thing is not consistent with the theory? Uh, what am I going to believe? You know, it's like Groucho Marx said, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? You know, I decided, <laughs> I decided to believe my own eyes rather than my theory. So, but, but six months later, I finally, maybe it was a year later, uh, reconciled uh, the regression theorem uh, according to um, the history of Bitcoin itself. And that was a great moment for me because I, I could still believe that Mises was, was correct and also that Bitcoin is true. You know, so, yeah. yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting because I think, I, I remember being in, in late 2014, I was in Australia hanging around with, you know, guys like you and me who were like obsessed with all this stuff, right? And we debated for like, hours the request the question of the regression theorem which again nobody in the planet earth even cares about except you and me and like 12 other guys uh and 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 many people were really willing to say screw the regression theorem i mean maybe mises was wrong you know like who even cares um and i guess i never was willing to fully say that because i the regression theorem is a story that I've told myself for so long. I, 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 actually, I take that back. At that conference, I think I might have been on the side of who cares, you know? Um, forget, forget our theory. We're, 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 we're learning. You know, let's just learn. Let's, don't worry about it. But, but I think it was later, maybe it was four or five months later, um, I finally reconciled the regression theorem uh, with Bitcoin in my own mind. And I wrote several obsessive, pointless articles about the topic just to get it done. And I remember lots of Bethesian scholars coming up to me at the time saying, wow, you've really figured this out. Why don't you write your big uh, 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 treatise on this topic for the Journal of Money, Credit, and Banking? And my own attitude at that point was like, yeah, okay, whatever. I mean, nobody reads your stupid journals anyway. I, you know, I have, <laughs> I, have articles, I have other kind of articles to write, so just forget it. But still, I would I would defend um, the relationship between the regression theorem and Bitcoin. Although um, my my colleague at AIR, uh, Will Luther, who's I don't know his, his IQ is is, is is double mine. I mean, he's he's just a genius. And and I was hanging out at the mansion a couple of months ago, and he he was you know, we're like one cocktail deep and he was uh, explaining to me that he understood my point and, and he agreed with me as far as I, as, as it went. However, and then he would made a series of, of uh, observations that seemed to refute what I was saying, but it was so, I hate to use the word deep, but it was deep. It was like several layers beneath where I was thinking in which he argued that actually it doesn't satisfy the conditions. And, and I, I just said to, I said, well, look, I, I don't know what to tell you, you know, I'm, I'm stupid. You're smart. Maybe you're right. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I don't care. I don't know. I've got my story. I'm sticking to it. Let's just go on with the evening. You know, so. 
<laughs> That's sort of what happened. But if he were here with you now, and I would encourage him, uh, you to get him on the podcast, he, he would take issue with my every one of my claims, actually. So uh, I was going to actually pivot away kind of from the more economic thing to kind of go into this crypto, I, I, I don't know, crypto utopianism, because I, you know, you, you are an, you know, an incorrigible optimist, uh, which can be kind of a rare thing in the libertarian world. Uh, and I, I feel like I was a little bit too young to witness the end of the, you know, the fall of the wall mm. and the end of communism. Mm. And, but just from reading a lot of like the older articles and things, I, I feel like people had like a real, triumph of markets triumph of 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 capitalism and, and liberty and it feels like you know that was kind of historically speaking quickly dash and then mm. there was kind of it felt like a resurgence of it uh, of kind of a widespread optimism at least mm. in in our circles with you know in the you know the 2008 Ron, Ron Paul campaign the bitcoin mm. kind of coming onto the scene and what mm. is you know what is the Jeffrey Tucker case for mm. optimism in the micro and, and the macro view of the future. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. Let, let me just kind of march back with everything you just said. Um, I remember those days very well. Um, and, uh, the fall of communism and everything. And I, I, I remember, I remember thinking after, after, um, I mean, Russia just like weirdly collapsed, you know, the Soviet Union just dissolved. Um, it went away in Poland. It went away in, you know, the, the, the Berlin Wall fell. Ceausescu in Romania was shot. Uh, um, China had reformed dramatically despite Tiananmen Square massacre and, and so on. I mean, there was a real sense that, that history had changed. And I remember thinking, it's so funny when I look back at those days. I remember thinking, wow, I, I dedicated myself entirely, my entire career, my entire life, everything I know about myself as an individual has been dedicated to the cause of the free market as versus socialism. And now that debate seems to be settled. I, I guess I just really, um, I mean, it's possible I can have to move on to a new career. I could go back to school and become an engineer. I could, you know, pick up my trombone and, play music again or something. I really, in those days, believed that the world was, you know, like the debate had been settled, basically, you know? <laughs> I mean, uh, I wish. yeah, and, and I remember going to, yeah, it was Cap I was living on Capitol Hill at the time, there was no internet, um, but I, I went to a bookstore and there was a magazine, a socialist publication called uh, Dissent. And because I, I couldn't wait to see what the socialist had to say about this, right? Um, and like like every free market intellectual in the day, I you know I wasn't really in touch with left wing literature except in to the extent it dealt with like foreign policy and evils of U.S. imperialism and stuff like that. But um, I didn't really get that. Basically, since the Hitler Stalin Pact of nineteen forty three or whenever that was that the left had really had no real concern about Soviet Union as such. They, they didn't believe it was genuine communism. And they thought Stalinism was a version of fascism. So Dissent Magazine, it was actually a journal. I mean, imagine those days when you couldn't find out anything except by going to the bookstore and buying a physical piece of paper. But anyway, yeah. so I, I, went to, I went to the bookstore and I bought the, the latest issue of Dissent. I couldn't wait to 
see how they would account for themselves. And the headline was something like, Stalinism collapses, socialism lives. And I thought, oh, you idiots. You know, that's just the dumbest thing I'd ever heard. Um, and I read the article, and it was all about, well, Stalin had nationalized communism, that he, he turned uh, Lenin's great vision of uh, universal socialism into a kind of a national fascist project. And, and if you think about Stalin the right way, he was really a corporate statist, you know, just like uh, FDR <laughs> and so on. And, and I, I remember reading this thinking, okay, you people are absolutely insane. Um, but wow, you sure are confident. You know, you've, you've really, st you still believe, you know, like there was nothing that happened in those days that shook the confidence of any leftist. And I remember thinking, well, you know, this is issue one. This is the spring of, well, what year are we talking about? Um, 2000. Or, no. Yeah. No, it was 80. Yeah, it was 80, 89 and 90 was the year when all this stuff happened, right? So yeah, let's yeah. say, yeah, time goes fast. So let's yeah. say it was the spring issue of 1990, something like that. And um, I thought, well, you people, you know, you've, you've done a valiant effort in trying to say, save your idiotic ideology. Um, but, but we'll know. We'll know. Uh, uh, the whole world will <clears throat> in a year or two. And yes, um, news travels slowly. Socialism will be bankrupt and and defunct in a couple of years, and um, but it was strange. It was like it was, it was like all the or, all the ideological camps of the time reoriented themselves to con <laughs> in a way to continue to believe what they already believed. You know, it's it's like it made no difference whatsoever. And in and here we are in two thousand eighteen, and the most vocal ideological camps of our time are really not that different from what they were in 1933 or 34. I mean, it's just as if the century had never happened, you know, and the debates are still there all over again. And, and it's, it's just utterly shocking to me. <clears throat> and I don't, I don't entirely know how to account for this ex except to say that, I guess it's a cliche to say we don't learn from history. But I think it's a, there's something even more profound um, to it than that. It's that we only learn from the things we lived. We only yep. gather lessons from that which we personally experienced and had a stake in. And then we learn from it. But the tragedy of the trajectory of human history is that we can't live at all times and all places. We just don't. We only live in our own times. So the people who didn't live into the, in, those, in those times um, have no memory of it. And any more than you and I remember the Peloponnesian Wars, you know? Um, and, and, and studying history is hard. Believing in history is harder. To learn something from that which we never experienced is almost impossible. You know, you were saying about not learning from history. And, and as you've called, you know, the kind of the right and left Hegelian ideas yeah. and just the amount of bodies over the last hundred years, how either of those ideals have any sort of traction. And it, it kind of leads me into that. The mm -hmm. next kind of thought that I had, on, you know, in the crypto utopian, and mm -hmm. I, I know that it's kind of like pie in the sky, some people would call it, but 
that, you know, that maybe we haven't learned because we haven't figured out a different way to do it. But with the, you know, there's that real line of thinking that we don't really understand, you know, Bitcoin as a, as a concept and and how much it's going to change society. And I think, you know, the, the idea of the fork is, is kind of a really interesting concept to me Mm. because it's less of an economic question. It's more of a political social one. What we saw with BTC and BCH, right? Mm. It was not an economic question. It was a political disagreement in the community about how to implement economic motivators in the, in, you know, for the protocol. Uh, to society. And I think that, you know, the political disagreement was rendered moot and unnecessary after the fork. Those who wanted on-chain uh, went to BCH, those who didn't want to BTC. And unlike things with the, <laughs> like the French Revolution, the revolutions of the, of the uh, you know, uh-huh. political revolutions of, the, of history, there was a lot of grudges, yeah. uh, but no blood. And I, I think this is kind of a revolutionary concept of how we can model a society, especially as we move more into like the ideas of virtual nations, citizenship. I, 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 let me just say, I, I think your thought is a, is a beautiful one. Uh, you know, the idea that our conflicts are becoming ever less violent. I mean, it may be not, if you're a, a Twitter maven, it may not seem that way to you. But yeah. actually, <laughs> but you're, you're exactly right. It's way better to wake up in the morning with 200 uh, trolling tweets on your, on your notifications than it is to have your uh, children's uh, and your mother and your father slaughtered by a revolutionary regime you know in 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 france so yeah it, it, there's no bloodshed as as bad as we think we have it it's it's actually a peaceful world and yeah the the idea that for I, I do like the, what you just said uh, that the fork is a kind of a, a new peaceful form of revolution that's that's really an interesting idea and i i there's a number of things that, like I have an intuition about all everything that's happened to us uh, over the last say 20 years and that's that you know we've we've undergone this great migration away from the material world into the digital world and we, we see it every day I mean Apple's now got a one trillion dollar market cap Amazon's accepts 32 orders per second more than a billion a year it's at a trillion dollars market cap you know I mean Consumer culture and the peace that's associated with that, by which I mean nonviolent uh, exchange, is the prevailing model uh, that is shaping our world today. And I, I think in so many ways, in nation states. Oh, and by the way, these are these are necessarily global institutions, and 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 uh, cryptocurrency is necessarily global. I mean, there's no currency, there's no trade zones, there's no you know, currency zones, there's no uh, national currencies in the crypto world. Uh, Bitcoin in, in Australia is identical to what it is in, in Moscow and so on. Um, this was never before possible in history. I, I, I think, I, you know, we, we talk about disintermediation um, all the time in, in the crypto world, but really, what is the ultimate mediator that prevents us from having that sort of peer-to-peer um, utopia and the ultimate one is the state itself and i think that's going to be the greatest victim of of the revolutions that's happening right now because it's going to become increasingly obvious that it serves no real purpose the nation state anymore and 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 i think that's why you have the trumps of this world you know um because there's a sense of panic it's like 
oh my God, you know, we, we better stop this now or there's no future to the thing we believe in most strongly, national identity, dictatorship, um, uh, strong men ruling the world. Uh, that, that, that's, those are all anachronisms. It's all, it's all of the past. So I don't think it's, it's, it's a coincidence that all the politics of our time are basically reactionary, whether it's Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. Everybody's trying to restore something from the, from the past. It's, it's all kind of glorified revanchism, really. And they're furious about the technological march of history. And, and how it's inexorably moving forward and reshaping our lives. And, and everybody loves it. I mean, people love Trump, too. People love Bernie Sanders, too. But they love their iPhones even more, actually. They love the ability to buy their raw walnuts on, on uh, Amazon at half the price they can get them at the local grocery store. I mean, that, it's that which we have a, a very close mat- material stake in, in the outcomes, which, which is our primary love. Uh, politics has become like a, an abstraction or like a, a fun drama we engage in. It's like a cultural game that we play. But does it really matter? I mean, I hope the answer to that is no. And I, and I think the long-term answer to that is that it's not going to matter at all. Well, I think that's actually a great note to end on. It was a, a great interview i really appreciate you taking your time out of the out of your day to come in and talk on on this uh podcast with me mm-hmm. and uh how can uh, people find you sure i mean you can uh, like I, I love i love twitter i think twitter is probably the most open network platform there is and so you can, i'm jeffrey a tucker on twitter and i write every day at american institute for economic research and uh, a quick google will dig up everything else and and let me say this too um um, I'm on a lot of podcasts, and I don't often get a chance to spend 20 minutes talking about the regression theorem. So, <laughs> so thank you for <laughs> indulging me. It's a very high-end uh, uh, venue you've provided, and 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 I, I like I like being challenged at that level. So thank you for that. That's very satisfying. And I'll have a link to all of uh, of Jeffrey's stuff in the show notes at DidYouKnowCrypto.com. And once again, thanks, Jeff. Okay, my pleasure.